you know that as a performer you go out there and you swing for the fences right mm -hmm. you you don't take that shallow bunt just to get on base you want to perform the best you can possibly do regardless of how you feel that day you know the mm -hmm. the old performers adage the show must go on I, I i totally live by that which is i've i've done total uh, presentations sick as a dog mm -hmm. and yeah. they didn't know it you know because show must go on why because that's part of my core brand identity this is unconditioning discovering the voice within with whitney and jenkins Hello and welcome to the 39th episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. This week I have with me D.P. Knuton. D.P. is the chief collaborator of Collaborator Creative. He's worked on some of the biggest brands in the business, including Coca-Cola, The Athlete's Foot, and Closet Maid. During 10 years at DDB Needham in Chicago, McCann Erickson in Atlanta, and Creative Shops in Denver, Sarasota, and Madison, Wisconsin. He is the author of nonfiction brand, Discover Craft and Communicate, The Completely True, Completely You Brand You Already Are, co-author Oritoma, the ROI of social media, top of mind, and the creator host of the popular podcasts, The Ritoma Podcast and Nonfiction Brand. He's also a keynote speaker and clinician in branding, social media, creativity, and culture for groups throughout the United States. DP and I had a fantastic time talking in this interview and conversation as we both have a background in performance and are both really passionate about storytelling and authenticity. DP is full of energy and charisma and has a lot of knowledge in his eclectic experiences of working as a performer to working with brands in big corporations and taking that and applying it to his own life and teaching us how we can apply it to ours. So here is DP Kudun. Yes, we are yes. saying interesting things now that the recording <laughs> is in progress. Now there's pressure. So how long have you been playing guitars and collecting them? Oh, um, all right. Long story. Well, actually, I did a little poking around your background, and I see you've got a performance background and stuff like that. And you'll probably appreciate this because um, jealousy is one of the great motivators for actors and performers. <laughs> I was in college. Okay. I had taken like a rec center guitar course when I was in sixth grade. I always wanted to play guitar, but uh, didn't have the follow through, you know, uh, all that stuff. But I was in college and there was a audition for a part and they wanted someone to play guitar. And I'm like, I don't really play guitar. And this one person said, whoa, I do. Well, the fact is, I knew they didn't play well, but it didn't matter because they played just a little bit better than me. So they got the part. I didn't. I'm upset and I'm just bound and determined that's not going to happen again. So I went out and do what I do, which is go out and buy a guitar and figure out how to play it. Okay. There you go. Rejection prompted you and yeah. inspired you. Yeah. Rejection, jealousy, 
Yeah. And yeah. the and basically uncovering the desire within that I always had, mm -hmm. but I never acted on it right. because I wasn't inspired to. So I could call it jealousy, but a better word would be inspiration. I was inspired by inspired. someone else's example. Yeah, even though it might have had a, a negative sort of circumstance initially, um, what it transformed into was a beautiful display and array of instruments that you have now collected. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I've, I've been around this earth long enough to have acquired things slowly over time. Uh, and my wife is very glad that she doesn't see these things all coming in the house at the same time. This is over, let's see, 40 years. Do you feel um, like an emotional connection to each one of them? Do each of them represent something specific to you? Some of them do. Um, you don't see them because they're so precious to me. They're acoustic guitars and they stay in their case because of humidity right. and stuff yeah. like that. And um, I have actually written songs for my wife and my three daughters and stuff like that on those acoustic guitars. So those have a lot of uh, emotional attachment to them. Mm -hmm. Some of the ones you see behind me right now are kind of, well, I don't know which one is exactly right for the sound I'm after. So I need one of those. I need one of those. I need one of those. And I get it. I play it for a while and go, you know, that's not quite the sound mm -hmm. I was after. So... You know, when you play guitar, especially if you ever get into electric guitar, you're never done purchasing <laughs> guitar pedals, guitar amps, or guitars themselves. Yeah. And there's actually a really bad medical condition called GAS, G-A-S, Guitar Acquisition Syndrome. <laughs> and unfortunately, I have incredibly bad GAS. Yeah. I have not delved into the electric side, and I think I'm going to stay away from that and stick with my acoustic think it's, yeah. it's more well, of my brand. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and acoustic's more my brand too, but, you know, I uh, worked for years at ad agencies, and one ad agency I joined, they heard I played guitar and said, you're in the band. And I'm like, what band? Well, we, get, we have a band, and we play at the Christmas party every year, and you're in the band. And I'm like, I don't play in a band. <laughs> well, you're in the band. So the guitar that's immediately over my left shoulder that's my very first electric guitar, which I bought because I liked the way it looked. I mean, mm. seriously, not the way it sounded, not the way it played, but the way it looked. And I was in the band, and I had a great time, and then I got sucked into that vortex. Okay, so it sounds like you have stumbled upon experiences that have led you to things that you're interested in. So is there a specific kind of like voice within you that guides you to these things? Or are you aware of them after you encounter them? The, uh, my, uh, okay, so I truly believe that people need to discover their voice. Uh, typically, I mean, discover their external voice, the voice right. they have to share with others. But I agree with you that there's kind of a voice within or a spirit within or a, you know, I, I hate to use the term inner child or something like mm -hmm. that. But I do believe at our core that we have an image of ourselves that is, more or less immutable and oftentimes inscrutable because yeah. we don't put enough effort to try to discover what that truly is about. And for the longest time, again, I wanted to play guitar. Why? Not because I wanted to play guitar, but because my inner core self is built on performance. Mm -hmm. You know, even when I, I'm, I've been a copywriter and an advertising creative director for 30 years now, even though I do that 
and my resume says I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. I'm not a writer. I've written two books. I'm not a writer. <laughs> At the bottom, you know, when I get down to the truth of who I am, I'm a performer, and I've known that since I was in third or fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And I actually tell a story about that situation in my current book, my latest book, Nonfiction Brand, about being at one of those teacher in-service days where they are, bring kind of the smarter kids in the class to participate in some type of workshop thing <laughs> with one of the speakers. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a improvisational workshop for mm -hmm. teachers, how you can use improvisational games to teach children. Right. And I was one of the people who participated in that. And frankly, while doing it, I got my first laughs. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's ever done comic improv, comedy improv, not yeah. theatrical improv, there is a difference. There is a difference. But comedy yeah. improv, yeah. But if you've done comedy improv, you know the joy of creating mm -hmm. something completely on the spot that elicits a comic response from the audience, a laugh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and a once bit you of, get that yeah. laugh, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it, once you get that laugh as a performer, you know one thing for sure, and that is, I want to get more laughs. Yeah, it's a bug. It's a little high. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's a drug. It's a bug and a drug. Yeah, that's interesting that you went back to that moment, because one of the first things that I like to ask my guests is when they realized that they did have that like inner core voice that you're talking about that wasn't influenced by their environment or anything around them, but you really knew that that was truly you and only you and yours alone. Do you have a specific memory of that? Well, okay. Um, you could say that that memory was a nascent memory that kind of grew mm -hmm. in my mind and I've remembered it for 50 plus years. And there's a reason why I remembered it. I don't remember what I ate on December 15th of 1968. Right. I do remember that specific moment in all its colors. Um, however, if you're talking about more of a, a conscious uh, hearing of my inner voice, I, I think I could fast forward into college when um, I was doing what good kids do in college, which was deny themselves to go into a, in a field of endeavor that they think might lead to a job oh, and yeah. <laughs> um, th that I was going to be a forest ranger. I was going to, my dream was to be a climbing uh, rescue ranger in Yosemite. You know, if, if you were to ask that kind of 18 year old me, what do you want to do? I'd be like, I want to wear one of those hats in Yosemite and rescue people who are up on El Capitan in trouble. Yeah. Well, that's an 18 year old mind, right? Well, after my first year of, of college, and by the way, I did take a theater uh, appreciation class because that was kind of a uh, an elective you could take just to fulfill your, for graduation. And I knew I loved theater from high mm -hmm. school. Yeah. But that wasn't realistic. You know, I denied that in myself. Oh. And I was going to be a forest ranger until I was, all of a sudden I said, you know what? I'm not a forest ranger. I am a performer. I am a an actor. I, I want to do theater. And so I switched from forestry to theater, kind of an interesting switch, but it was based on me listening to exactly who I am, what I do and yeah. how I do it in a way that aligned myself with a future 
that was going to be at least, maybe not really remunerative in terms of dollars, mm -hmm. but definitely profitable in terms of self-actualization, right. satisfaction, et cetera. Yeah. So what was it about like the performance and theater in particular that you felt that you were able to express your authenticity? Well, because, um, let me think. That's a really good question that I haven't really thought about. What was it about that? I, I think it's just that I discovered the true essence of who I am in that mm -hmm. kind of performer persona. And it's not a fake persona at all. It, it just is. That's right. the way I am. The mm -hmm. funny thing is I am a high-functioning introvert when it comes to, you know, if you're doing a psychological test. I can turn it on. Like right now I'm having no problem talking mm -hmm. to you, answering questions with you, being ambulant and hopefully a little bit bubbly. Yeah. But the second we're off this recording, I will collapse in a puddle on the floor and go, I can't talk to anyone for the next 24 hours. Yeah, we're very because similar. I yeah. Am in, yeah, I'm an introvert, you mm -hmm. know, and guess what? Do you know how many performers are introverts? Do you know how many professional speakers at a very high level are self-professed introverts? There's a reason why people who are introverted seek out performance opportunities because they want to focus their performance and their abilities on a specific venue, a specific time, and a specific audience mm -hmm. so that they don't have to do it all the rest of the day. Right. You know, it, yeah. I, you, you know, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. <laughs> you are you're definitely. Before, absolutely. Um, I, I grew up in theater, too, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and it allows also for a very particular mindfulness and presence um, that talking to people in your everyday life um, usually doesn't uh, provide for you. Yeah, well, and, and again, because I'm talking to you, I know you get this. One, we all have heard the people say, save it for the stage. <laughs> if I ask you, what does save it for the stage mean? You will reply, what will I, re I will, I will reply. Oh, um, what does that mean to you? Save it for the stage. If someone said, save it for the stage, what, what does that mean? Well, um, save all of the theatrics and the drama and the highs and, and the lows. And the, I'm not sure exactly if that's where you're leading me. Well, no, you're, <laughs> You, you're, you're, uh, there is no exactly right answer, but you okay. answered it correctly, which is <laughs> there are times and places for that type of energy. And if you're an introvert, it's on a stage. For example, again, I did comedy improv, right? Mm -hmm. Well, comedy improv, people think you have to be funny all the time on stage, off stage, to which I say, oh, contraire, mon frere, mm -hmm. you don't have to be funny off stage. You have to be funny on stage, so save it for the stage. Now, I have never, ever tried to do stand-up comedy. I have no interest in doing stand-up comedy. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with stand-up comedians, but I know enough about myself to know that I am not a stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been around stand-up comedians at the Comedy Cellar or you know Funny Bone or something like that, they stand in a circle, trying to out funny each other right literally it's a competition for laughs and attention i cannot stand that that is not me 
Yeah. And you, again, yeah. because I'm talking to you, a performer, mm -hmm. I would say I'm a performer, but I'm an actor. Right. An actor. It, there's a difference between Anthony Hopkins, the actor, and Tom Cruise, the actor. Mm -hmm. Anthony Hopkins is an actor who can lose himself in a part so much that you don't know you're seeing Anthony Hopkins in a film. Right. With Tom Cruise, he can play a one-eyed German who's out to kill Hitler, and he still <laughs> looks like Tom Cruise. Right. Yes, that's, this is very true. So that's very interesting. So the more authentic you are to yourself in whatever your endeavor is, and we're talking about theater or stand-up comedy now, the more you're able to be effective in the performance. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I'm saying you're being more true to yourself yeah. because here, here's the reality. You're out in Los Angeles. Well, guess what? After I did my switch from uh, forestry to theater, I graduated with a BS in theater. Yes, a BS, <laughs> a Bachelor wow. of Science in theater, okay. which I personally love. <laughs> it's a teaching degree, but it's a it's a BS in theater. Ha ha ha. Wow. Yes, the the comic improv artist in me loves that fact. I then was uh, accepted at the University of Southern California into the Master of Fine Arts program to be in acting. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in theater. It was in acting. Okay. I was going to be a professional capital a actor at usc which is not an inconsequential deal right yeah but it it messed with my head going to los angeles because <laughs> as you well know in los angeles if you are an actor a performer a musician anything you have got to have a titanium ego mm -hmm. and the drive to continue to see it through even, you know, I, I like to try to impress people who are not actors with how difficult it be, can be. And I say, okay, you've been on job interviews, right? Yes. How many in your entire career? Oh, I don't know, maybe 10. Okay. Now imagine that you're an actor going to a job interview 10 times every week and not getting the job 10 times every week and probably for years, right. you know, I, I had a pretty high conversion rate when it comes to me uh, auditioning for stuff. My conversion rate was maybe one every 35 auditions. Mm -hmm. I could see that for you. Yeah. yeah. And that was enough to keep me going. Mm -hmm. But my God, it is really, really hard unless you have totally aligned yourself with that idea that you are going to have a future as an actor or a performer or a, a singer, whatever you, it is. And I'll be honest with you, LA is not conducive to that, at least not for someone like me. Mm -hmm. And um, I love the movie La La Land because yeah. I thought it captured so much of the spirit of Los Angeles and being a working artist there. And the, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen La La Land, the guy doesn't get the girl at the end, but they both have the careers they always hoped they would have. Well, that's kind of the deal. Yeah. I wanted the girl and I yeah. wanted the career and it doesn't happen that way. So I decided, I, and I decided I wanted the girl more than I wanted the career. And when I say I wanted the girl, I wanted a family. I wanted to have children. I wanted to have a life where it's not constant cutthroat, dog eat dog. I, I wanted to, uh, still retain my soul yeah. and be true to my foundation, 
but I don't want to do what you have to do to survive as a working actor in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. Yeah, and also if you are an actor to the true core of what an actor is and the value of that as a storyteller, you're going on these auditions for a project that you may or may not be interested in sharing that story. And so then it becomes, well, what am I doing this for? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this, there's a scene in La La Land where Emma Stone walks into an audition and every single pe person in the hallway looks exactly like her, dressed the same way because they're all dressed for the same part. And you go, yeah, that's exactly it. They aren't looking for an actor. They're looking for a type. Yeah. And the funny thing is one of my professors at USC said to me, if you can play what you look like, you're going to have a career. And I said, I don't play what I look like. I play, I, I'm a character actor. I, yeah. I do the, the tougher parts, you know? Uh, you know, because even in high school, it was, it was like, yeah, we'll give the, the high school cheerleader the, the ingenue role, but the good actress who happens to be a drama kid, the good actress we're going to put in the hard role because they can handle it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want the hard role because I can handle it. And you don't get that when at the time, at, I'm not bragging here. When at the time someone said drunkenly late at night, shut up, you Rob Lowe lookalike. <laughs> so, I can see that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's been a while and he's in a lot better shape than me, but <laughs> we're close to the same age. I will say that. Mm -hmm. I could definitely see that. So since that wasn't resonant with you being in that environment, what was the moment where you decided to step away from that and become more aligned with where you wanted to be? Well, a, a big part of it was uh, there was a crisis. My parents were divorcing. I was out at USC by myself. Literally, I knew the 12 other people or however many other people were in the MFA class, and that was it. And LA is, can be a, a very warm place meteorologically, but it can be a very cold place personally or community wise, unless you find your tribe very, very quickly. I did not find my tribe. So at the end of that first year of uh, the MFA program, I was just, I was burnt out. I mean, there were four main stage shows at USC that everybody auditioned for. I was in three of them. I was the only MFA student to get in any of them. Wow. So it was, a, I was doing really, really well, mm -hmm. but I couldn't do it because it was, it was not aligned with, you know, that kind of inner voice that you right. were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I, I used the excuse to leave, to not finish my MFA. My parents were divorcing, as I said, you know, and so I was, I was casting about, I was floating about trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I stumbled into comedy improv. I did that, uh, did that for quite a while. I did a lot of TV and voiceover. You know, I did all the stuff that a working actor has to do. Right. And whenever I, and this is something I noticed. This is, and by the way, you're a voice actor, right? I am, yes. Mm -hmm. You know the joy of working with nonlinear editing systems where you <laughs> don't have to ever cut tape. Yeah. I started my voiceover career when you cut tape, literally. And if you had a 65-second script that has to be a 60-second script because it's a radio spot, you either talked really, really fast or you started making edits on the fly and 
take after take after take. And I would get these scripts and they would be poorly written, grammatically incorrect. Spelling is terrible. They weren't written to be read aloud. Right. I know yeah. you know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. There's a difference between writing to be read on the page versus writing to come out of somebody's mouth. Oh. And what I recognized, because I'm, again, my acting background and stuff is, I kept saying to myself, I can do this. I can write better than this. I can write better than this. Yeah. And so I started uh, looking, I, I, I just kind of filed that away. And then I had an opportunity, long story I won't go into, uh, to build a portfolio of written ideas in the hopes of maybe getting in front of a creative director at an ad agency who might be needing to hire a copywriter. Mm -hmm. Copywriters are the people who write those scripts, you right. know, yeah. come up with the ideas. Well, mm -hmm. I had already been in a, a huge idea generator by being in improv. Right. I had always already been someone who had been in a number of productions, both in on camera, in front of camera, behind camera, associated with camera. So I was very aware of what production was. I had done voiceover, which was strictly audio and seen that and been involved with that. So all these skill sets that I picked up osmotically just made a ton of sense to, to maybe I could try to get this job. Well, bottom line is I did get a job. I got that mm -hmm. first starter job, which led within a year to a better job, which led to a year to a better job, because here's the thing. If you're good at what you do, people will recognize that and elevate you pretty darn quickly. So I went from entry level to associate creative director within five years, which is pretty fast. Yeah. And um, and that allowed me to get the girl that allowed me to have the family that allowed me to buy the house that right. allowed me to do all the things that my that were truly aligned with my heart that allowed me to do that. Now, again, you could say, well, DP, you said that at the at the real core of it, you're a performer. And I'd say, yeah, I perform every single day mm -hmm. when I have to present ideas or right. radio spots or whatever to my clients. I have to perform them. Right. I literally mm -hmm. perform them. I do the voices. Yeah. I excite them via my energy. I I literally take a look at the audience that I'm playing to and I play to the audience. And as you know, as a performer, you can spot the one person in the room who wasn't buying anything you're saying, mm -hmm. and you can either do one of two things, ignore them or play to them and yes. get to them so that by the end of it, they love you. Right. I would yeah. always yeah. choose plan B there and they would. And here's the thing too, the people who are hardest on you, are often the ones who love you the best when they finally understand, oh, you get it. You, you know, you're aligned with my vision of what this is, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that performer in me, I do it every single day. Mm -hmm. I just don't do it in front of a paying ticketed audience, which actually helped me out a lot when this pandemic rolled around yeah, because mm -hmm. I didn't lose a minute's worth of work because the audiences couldn't come to the theater. Right. Which, again, keeps the girl that I got a whole lot happier, keeps my daughters <laughs> who are now all in college, nice. you know, all that stuff that, you know, if I were I, I put myself in the shoes of an actor at the at the beginning of the pandemic and just watch every production shutter and I go, what would I have done? 
Right. Because also their backup job of being in the service industry was also shut down. So the backup plan of many entertainers and performers was not an option either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And a lot of performers, however, many of them already had something like you do, mm-hmm. a podcast platform, which right. is a performance venue, a performance mm-hmm. uh, stage. Um, and I've seen a ton of fantastic performers, whether they're musicians or actors or improv artists, they came up with whole new ways of getting their art out there via the powerful tools, including the one we're using right now, Zoom. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Just got to find a way to compensate the artists better, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's been a perennial problem. (laughs) And yeah. But at the same time, what's cool uh, you're probably a big fan of stuff on YouTube. I certainly am. As a musician, I love to watch those bands that have really embraced YouTube. And one of them is a group called Scary Pockets. And they do uh, really fun, funky covers of popular songs and stuff like that. And it just so happens that the keyboard player in that group is the CEO of Patreon. Are oh, you familiar with Patreon? I am. I am yes. Wow. All right. Okay. For you, if your listeners don't know Patreon, it is a artist-oriented system that allows you to become a patron of an artist. So, Whitney Ann, let's say that I like your podcast. I can become a patron of you and your podcast, and I can do something like uh, pay you $5 a month. Mm-hmm. You know, sign up and be a $5 a month patron for you. Yeah. Would that help out Whitney Ann Jenkins? Oh, yes, it would. Yeah, absolutely. And you, <laughs> if you multiply that times 100, all of a sudden you're talking about, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Multiply that times several thousand, and you're like, I don't need a regular job anymore because now I am a creator. Yeah. We've all heard about the creation, creator mm-hmm. economy. Well, guess what? There are a whole lot of people who have discovered, you know what? I don't have to do what I used to do because I'm making more money now doing what I love yeah. via the incredible power tools of social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like uh, you got to your position by putting all of the puzzle pieces of yourself together. Well, in uh, initially it was almost accidental, but then it became purposeful because I literally said to myself, you know what, forestry, all the people I'm meeting are they're really boring. Mm-hmm. They're very nice people, but they're boring. I they have no flair. They have no joie, joie de vivre. Yes. They you know they they I can't get there and and sit across from them and talk about my uh I remember the movie Elephant Man, David Lynch's movie The Elephant Man came out and I was just wrecked by that film. It's such a beautiful film. And I was trying to talk to someone about it and they said, "You know what?" I watched it and it was fun, but you just think deeper about this stuff than I do. And I went, no, I don't. I'm no brilliant guy. I'm no Nobel laureate. But this guy was like, I just watch stuff and then forget about it. I'm like, I need more people that have yeah, uh, an artistic yeah. soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I worked and, at a, f- a factory, so I understand exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and that's... and. The best thing about working at a factory is it clarifies your mind very quickly. (laughs) And you say, you know what? This is not for me. I have got to find something else. So that helped me find 
advertising and marketing copywriting. I'm still generating ideas on a daily basis. I'm still performing on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I'm still excited about checking out the latest cool stuff on TikTok and YouTube and all the social media channels. I'm in your listeners may not know this, but I'm a little bit older than Whitney Ann. <laughs> in fact, if you need to know how old, just let me say that in the summer of love, 1968, 69, was it? Mm -hmm. I was seven years old. Wow. So let's just say I was alive when John F. Kennedy was alive. I was admittedly a baby, <laughs> but all those black and white pictures of John F. Kennedy, yeah, that's, that's my time <laughs> period. I have not stopped living. I yeah. have not stopped learning. I have not stopped loving to learn. Mm -hmm. which is why I get so excited about things like podcasting. And, and the whole thing is I'm delighted to be on your podcast, but I have my own podcast yeah. where I get to perform every single week mm -hmm. by having people like Whitney Ann on asking deeper questions about ideally, in my case, my, my podcast is called nonfiction brand. It's about creating a n truly nonfiction brand that is completely true completely you yeah. to the brand that you already are. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm talking about is not pretending to be a Kardashian right. or yes. Charlie D'Amelio mm -hmm. or whatever, but yeah. being the very best who you are and then presenting it, projecting it and protecting it via the powerful, incredible channels of social media. Because here's the thing, for the first time in human history, I can go live with anybody on the face of the globe who has a broadband connection of some sort, talk to them, engage with them, learn from them. And if I wanted to engage in business or swapping uh, ideas or whatever I want to do, mm -hmm. that is there for anybody. Yeah. The question is, are you going to take it by the reins and do it for yourself? Or are you going to literally hide your light under a bushel and become a commodity product that is swapped out whenever they decide you're too old, you're mm. too expensive, and therefore you're expendable. No, no, I, no I'm going to let my little light shine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And also at the heart of everything that you're talking about, of the performance and the copywriting and the marketing and the advertisement, at the heart of all of that seems to be storytelling. And yeah. yeah, and so also at the heart of storytelling, I feel like is authenticity. So how do you, as doing what you're doing, incorporate that nonfiction brand of that authentic voice within the branding to ensure that you're being true to yourself? Okay, well, that's a that's a big question, and I'm not going to be able to answer it completely. But I will say this, you've got to do the work to discover who you are, what you do, and how you do it, the core stuff I've talked about, the things about yourself that will not change, cannot change, should not change. Because those are the things that form the pivot point upon which your entire life can can uh, can move. Because here's the thing, if you're a brand, you need to change a little bit. Yeah. But you never do a 180. 
you are always going in the same direction, but maybe you have to calibrate a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, depending on what's going on. The only way that you can do that is if the pivot point upon which you stand is firmly based on exactly who you are, what you do, and how you do it. So what do I mean when I say that? Okay, so we've already talked about the fact that I'm a performer, that yeah. I write, I do all these things, blah, blah, blah. I did the work on myself, and I do this with the people I work with, to get even deeper than that, kind of the first principle ideas about who you are as a person. And I have a thing I call the key three. Everybody should have a key three, which are the key three concepts, phrases, or words that define you so that perfectly, mm -hmm. maybe not completely, not every aspect of you, because again, a brand doesn't have to tell you everything about it. It's got to tell you enough about things to get you interested to engage with them. So three things, and this goes all the way back to when I worked on Coca-Cola in Atlanta, Georgia, when I worked at McCann Erickson, an agency there. Coca-Cola is nothing more than sweet brown bubbly water. I'm not kidding, since 1886. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sweet brown bubbly water. Their closest competitor makes sweet brown bubbly water. Slightly different flavor profile, but entirely different brand. So much so that if, an age, if I go into a restaurant and the server comes up to me and says, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have Coca-Cola. We only have Pepsi products. I will say, oh, that's okay. I'll just have water. Right. Are you telling me that there's such a difference between the two that I couldn't, if I wanted a cola, I couldn't have Pepsi? No. I am a Coke loyalist because Coke has always known exactly who they are, what they do, and how they do it. Mm -hmm. And they had, when I worked on their account, three words, concepts, and phrases that described exactly what their product was. Authenticity, refreshment, and sociability. Now, I can go spend hours talking about what those things mean, but let's just stipulate that because they constantly are authentic, social, and uh, refreshing, and focus on that when it comes to communications, they never lose sight of that. And I could go into a whole digression about New Coke in the 1980s, but that, that's just, <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast episode. Yeah. But let's just say Coca-Cola is a premium brand when they should be the lowest possible price commodity. Mm -hmm. Think about it. You can go to Walmart and get Sam's Cola for, I don't know, 50% of what Coca-Cola costs. Same thing, right? Not to me, because Coca-Cola <laughs> is a brand. So when it comes to you, the individual, who are you, what do you do, and how do you do it? What are the, the core aspects of you? Let me give you an example myself. Okay. I've done the work to get to that kind of DNA amino acids level of mm -hmm. what makes me tick. Yeah. Three words, creativity, collaborate, collaborative, I'm sorry, creative, collaborative, provocative. Mm, okay. What does that mean? I got to be on the creative side of something. You know, you will not get me on the analytical side of anything. I'm on the creative side mm -hmm. to a fault. I am a creative person, right? Collaborative. I have to work with other people. Mm -hmm. I am not an artist who sits up in a garret writing 
songs and poems for myself. I have got to perform them because I collaborate. Artists and actors collaborate with their audiences to create a performance. It's called rehearsal when there is no audience. <laughs> right. When there is an audience, it's called a production. You know, that that's an actual performance, right? And then the last one, which took me the longest time to figure out, but I hopefully am demonstrating right here, is I need to provoke people. Not in a mean way, but in a way that makes them go, you know what? You're making me think. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I don't like that, but you're making me think. Because yeah. here's the thing. I like to serve my tea hot. Some people don't like hot tea. They want it watered down and comfy. I am not watered down and comfy. I serve it hot. And then part of my performance is getting you to accept the, ooh, it's better hot. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. what I do. Because yeah. otherwise, why would you engage with me as a creative, collaborative associate of you, you know, a partner or service provider, if I didn't provoke you to do more and better than you could do yourself? Uh, if I'm just taking an order, I'm a quick serve restaurant. <laughs> I am a white tablecloth restaurant where you come in and say, I'd like the burger. And then the executive chef who created the menu tells you what kind of burger you're going to have based. Mm. You, you can pick the meat temperature, medium rare. Absolutely. You don't come in the kitchen. Right. Yes. I can relate to you on so many levels, but I don't want to get into that because that's not what this is about. Um, but one of the reasons why I loved performing was because I wanted to inspire people to think a different way. So that is something exactly. that I, I definitely relate to. Um, so let's see. Branding and yourself. Do you ever change those three words depending on what the audience is or you stick to them always? Okay, well, I stick to them always, but like a, car, a turn based card game, mm -hmm. I may lay them out in different orders. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'm in Wisconsin and we love our turn based card games like Euchre and Sheep's Head and stuff like that, Pinochle, you know, whatever. Those three things, like what do I lead with? It depends on the audience I'm talking to, you know, because. I'll, I'll tell you, I rarely lead with a provocative card. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Like if I'm presenting an, a, a series of ideas, like it could be idea A, B, or C, I'll often present, uh, I have a technique, I call it the Goldilocks technique. Mm -hmm. you you've got baby bear, mama bear, and papa bear. Baby bear, exactly what they want. Super <laughs> comfortable, super sweet, not scary at all. Then you've got Mama Bear, who's a little bit farther out there, maybe a little scary, especially when she's uh, trying to protect her baby bear. And then you got Papa Bear. Papa Bear could be an idea that is totally scary and something you, you would say instantly, oh, we could never do that. In my experience, one uh, or uh, two of those ideas will sell more often than the third. Baby bear will sell to the people who are like, I just want to be super comfortable. Or Papa bear will sell because they think, oh my God, we could never do that. But then I'm getting them excited. I'm provoking them to think differently. And I'm inspiring them to get out of their shell saying, well, why couldn't we do that? And all of a sudden, the people who 
who feel that inspiration say, we're going with that one. So again, that's an example right there of being provocative, mm -hmm. but you'll notice if I present them, the order I'm presenting in typically is baby bear first, mm -hmm. mama bear second, and I'll even say, and we have another one, but uh, I don't know, it's pretty out there. I don't know if you guys <laughs> can handle this. To which they are so excited by the first two ideas, they're like, oh, you gotta tell us. And I'm like, I don't know, it's kind of scary. You know, it's a, it's a big out there idea. No, no, let, let, let's hear it. Mm -hmm. I know I've done well when I go in and they buy one of mama bear or pop or a baby bear, but then they say, you know what? Let's do Papa Bear next year. Mm. It's like they're they're getting. Yeah, I'm excited by that, but not really need to yet. build up yeah. to it. Mm -hmm. But but the whole point is, I took them from Baby Bear, where they're totally comfortable, all the way to considering and maybe even accepting Papa Bear that Papa Bear idea, because again of performance skills of a transfer of enthusiasm and yeah i don't know if you know this uh saying it typically is attributed to people in sales sales mm -hmm. is nothing more than a transfer of enthusiasm yeah um does that not describe every single musical performance you've ever been in your enthusiasm for the material has to be translated to the audience you're transferring that enthusiasm. Like I, I think about the opening number of Hamilton. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts out real slow, not fast, and then it starts going and and everybody's in the rhythm and it's louder and everybody's coming in and all of a sudden you're sucked into a two and a half hour show yeah. within the first 20 seconds because they took you along and transfer that enthusiasm. How does a bastard Scotsman mm -hmm. son of a whore and a you know, all that stuff. <laughs> yes, that that is very important. And also you must be very intuitive too to know which to present that they will accept first. Yeah, and, and I'm not I'm not infallible. Believe me, I've fallen mm -hmm. on my face plenty of times. But you know that as a performer. You go out there and you swing for the fences, right? Mm -hmm. you, you don't take that shallow bunt just to get on base. You want to perform the best you can possibly do, regardless of how you feel that day. You know, the, mm -hmm. the old performer's adage, the show must go on. I, 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 I totally live by that, which is I've, I've done total uh, presentations sick as a dog, mm -hmm. and yeah. they didn't know it. You know, because show must go on. Okay. Why? Because that's part of my core brand identity. So, yes, while creative, collaborative, and provocative are those three core words, the next layer up from that is that performer thing. I've come mm -hmm. to realize that perf uh, based on that stage, the next word up literally is performer. And um, that's actually something I've come to in the last 90 days oh wow okay. yeah because i was talking to someone on my podcast about their performance background and i realized oh my god i am collaborative creative provocative <laughs> but right above that i need to perform wow and i learned that at age 60. well 
you never stop learning. Yeah, no, and you, absolutely. So, so coming a, a, upon that realization, is there something specifically that connects you with that desire and need to perform? I don't, I don't know what it is. I, you know, I, part of it is, I will be honest with you. I've thought about this again, because I think about stuff way too much. I've thought about this and why do I have this drive to perform? And I'll be honest with you. I feel that I want to be somewhat extraordinary, <laughs> not I climbed Mount Everest naked, extraordinary, but I want to be extraordinary. I want to be something more than just, and just is not necessarily a fair word, but as you said, you if you work at a factory, you work with people who just want to make enough to get a six pack, go home and watch a football game. Right, yeah. I don't ever want to do that. You know, I don't know about you. My wife makes, makes fun of me, but I'm watching uh, stuff on Netflix with the native language on because I love feeling the uh, the zeitgeist of the TV show, even though it's in Dutch. Right. Yeah. I'm reading the subtitles, sure, but there's something about that immersion. Mm -hmm. and, and yet the ordinary TV viewer would say, oh, I hate subtitles. I want things to be served up to me, you know, I want it like a CBS three camera sitcom. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but um, I'm a fan of the new girl, you know, okay. the TV series that was on mm -hmm. with Zoe Deschanel. Right. And I loved Schmidt. Schmidt, the character of Schmidt was fantastic. The actor, and I'm sorry, I don't know his name, was fantastic. He's now on a TV show on CBS where he plays a three-camera sitcom actor. I think it's called The Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, how far you've fallen as an actor. <laughs> I feel for you, dude, because you were fantastic as yeah. Schmidt in The New Girl. Yes. I feel like he's violated his brand, to be honest. Okay, so here's a question. The, the entertainment industry in general has gone through a lot of interesting moments um, through the past years. So what would you say the journey of their brand has been and where do you see it going? Well, the entertainment industry as a whole? Yeah. Um, well, okay, what I see, the thing that excites me the most is, um, without going into heavy Marxist theory, <laughs> Let's just say that Karl Marx said that uh, the means of production need to be in the hands of the producers. You know, the, the idea that someone owns a printing press and people work at the printing press, but they don't own the printing press. The means of production, you know, only a few people had the, the means of production within their ability or within their grasp. The most exciting thing that I see happening is a bunch of individuals who have created personal brands for themselves mm -hmm. are creating, are now have the means of production in their hands in the form of YouTube, in the form of low cost cameras that actually create really good images, yeah. high quality cinematography, entire films are shot on iPhones for crying out loud. And people are editing and uh, doing it all themselves bypassing music labels like 
a lot of the the most exciting new artists are being discovered on Bandcamp or YouTube or <laughs> any number of other things. They're totally bypassing the gatekeepers. So yes, it would be great to have William Morris agency pick you up and then ignore you uh, as an agent versus someone like, um, oh God, I'm, I'm not gonna remember her name, who created uh, Geek and Sundry, uh, Felicia Day, mm -hmm. who created Geek and Sundry with her posse and created a whole uh, kind of fan-oriented universe of shows, podcasts, events, you name it, bypassing all the major gatekeepers. All of a yeah. sudden, because you have the means of production, mm -hmm. I can point to someone like Whitney Ann Jenkins and say, you have the means of production to create a podcast that projects you, your voice, and your brand out to people every single episode you do. Those episodes are then on a podcast uh, hosting service. Right. And they're there, up there for anyone to listen to as long as you pay the 5 to $10 a month to have that hosting service host them. Mm -hmm. Think about that. And guess what? Someone might stumble on your podcast, episode 35. <laughs> if it's a good episode, they yeah. might go all the way back to one and mm -hmm. listen forward. I've done it. I cannot yeah. tell you how many times. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you have the means of production. So that's where I see exciting, really, really exciting things happen. If you look at certain brands, I and I said to you, like if I said to you, Whitney Ann, I, I've got an audition, uh, two auditions for you on the same day. Uh, you can only pick one because they have to audition you at the same time. One is for HBO, the other is for the Sci-Fi Network. Which one are you going to? Um, HBO. Yeah, HBO. Mm -hmm. Why? Perceived quality. Or right. I could say USA Network. I could say, you know, whatever. HBO has a brand that is right up there at the highest level possible. Right. Even though, and uh, this is pointed out by someone I follow on a regular basis, even though they have less content than some of the major other players, the quality of that content is superior. I'm watching right now on HBO Station yeah. 11, which is fan-freaking-tastic. It could not be on any other channel or any other streaming service because it's a little too esoteric for them. But for someone like me who likes to think way too much, it is fantastic. And if you, as an actor, like say you're a movie level actor, mm -hmm. streaming services are scary, right? Yeah. Unless HBO's not a bad one to burnish you, you know. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, however, got burned with Black Widow, with Marvel Universe and Disney and all that stuff. So um, it's it, your question is a hard one to answer. Yeah. Uh, other than to say the means of production are in the hands of the creators. Every creator is a brand. Right. Like if I said to you, um, we got a part for you in a J.J. Abrams film, would that mean anything to you? Well, yeah, probably. If Or <laughs> or Martin Scorsese, would that yeah. mean something? Yeah, we'll, we'll, go with, we'll go with that. Yeah, or I'm just saying these are name brand but directors. Right. Yeah, you're right. 
You're right. And, and with the influx of the potential for all of this creativity, there is also an element of oversaturation. And then, um, so I'm not sure how that affects quality um, and finding quality and the deep dive into searching for something and how that comes to people and finding what is out there as far as brand goes is well yeah <laughs> well quality is based on your taste your sensitivity mm -hmm. and the taste and sensitivity of the people you surround yourself with right if you hang out with people who create ha ha yee -hee, ho ho cbs three camera sitcoms don't be surprised if the quality of what you do is not necessarily uh, of the quality you want to represent you or that mm -hmm. represents your your taste, etc. Yeah. You know, there's there's a truth to the idea that, uh, OK, uh, this has actually been proven, I guess. I, I can't cite this the thing, but take the 10 people you hang out with. Find out what they make. Then divide that number by the number of people in the group. And that is the median income for everybody within that group. So if you hang out with millionaires, you're probably a millionaire. If you hang out with billionaires, you're probably a billionaire. If you hang out with people who are making $32,000 a year, you're probably making $32,000 a year. Yeah. That has to do with money. But artistically, the same thing goes with quality. If you're hanging out with people who are doing really high quality work, not uh, that you recognize as high quality, because again, everything's subjective. And one person's fantastic work is someone else's, I didn't get it. Right. But if you're hanging out with um, people who are doing high quality work, high quality cinematography, high quality audio production, high quality uh, writing, and um, you know, just all that stuff, you're much more likely to be high quality yourself. Mm -hmm. You are as good as the people surrounding you. Yeah. So the key is, how good am I mm -hmm. knowing how good I am or how good I want to be? Yeah. And then associating with those that are of a similar quality. I like to call this the flock I want to fly with. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I may be flying at a lower level than the higher people that are higher altitude that I want to fly with, but I'm paying attention to them. And yeah. let me give you a hardcore example of what I'm talking about. I am in just outside Madison, Wisconsin, the capital of the fine state of Wisconsin. My podcast, which is now on episode 180, has had uh, a whole lot of guests. Yeah, I would imagine. Very few of them come from where I live. Mm -hmm. Is that because I don't like the people I that I hang with or anything like that. I go, no. In fact, some of my best episodes have been with people who are from where I am. I'm the ones who are flying in the flock I want to fly with where I am. Right. But I'm reaching outside my geographic mm -hmm. area to talk to people internationally yeah. who are flying at that higher altitude. Why? because the curation I do when I invite guests onto my podcast directly reflect, reflect on me and my brand. Absolutely. Yes. I want to fly with a higher flock. I got to, I got to identify them, target them, and then ingr I don't want to say ingratiate, 
but connect with them because it's not about trying to brown nose your way into the cool kid club. Mm -hmm. It's about becoming what they are, which is supremely good at what they do. Right. Yes. And it, it seems like also the connection of all of these things that we're talking about is also connection and finding that connection and a way to connect. Right. And, and a big part of branding is about making connections easy. Yes. Again, picture yourself going to a supermarket. You're having a party at your house. You know that someone's going to be wanting a lemon lime of soft drink. Someone's going to want a cola soft drink. Someone's going to want uh, some mixers for gin and tonic. So I need to get some tonic. You know, you've got this kind of short list in your head of stuff to get. You just go down that thing and you you don't even look for the words on the carton. In my case, I look for the red and white of the <laughs> Coke logo and stuff. And I grab it. And, and keep in mind, there are 500 different soft drinks in that aisle. I don't see any of them except my brand. That's my yeah. brand, my brand, my brand, my brand, my brand. Fill the cart, get out of there as fast as I can. Branding is about differentiating yourself so it people can very easily know that you're the one I want for this specific thing. Mm -hmm. And again, as an actor, you like to say, I can play any part. Well, the answer is eh, not really. You know, you're of a certain age, you're of a certain weight, you're of a certain ethnicity, you're of, of a certain whatever. All of these things come into play. Now, the question is, as an actor, do you have to go into some type of really tight, niche uh, area and say, I only do comedies? Well, a lot of comic actors have done exactly that. And when they try to break out of it, it doesn't go well for them. Yeah. Why? Because everyone expects them to be a certain way. Kevin Hart, great comedian, great comic actor. Could he do a serious role? Could he be a part in the, um, the latest... Uh, uh, King Lear shot in black and white. No, it's Macbeth. Macbeth shot in black and white. That's on HBO. I think it's on HBO. Probably not. <laughs> ah, but if there's a comic role in one of those Shakespeare plays, and there's always a comic role, even in the tragedies. Yeah. Would it be interesting casting to have Kevin Hart as as Festy in, in uh, Twelfth Night? Or something like that. Yeah, that could be that could be really interesting. That could. Let's, let's start that up. Yeah, but my <laughs> my point is, yeah. uh, or if you don't have the look to become an action hero, it's not going to work too well. Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow is great because she's got this edge to her. Yeah. That really, really, you can you can. You can suspend your disbelief enough to go, yes, I could see her as a highly trained former Soviet assassin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I buy yeah. that. Yeah, unless you're going for Where some... other actresses, yeah. you'd go, no way. <laughs> no way. Someone that amazes me is Amy Adams. She's, you know, she started out in uh, uh, musical theater. Mm -hmm. I mean, dinner theater up in right. Chanhassen, Minnesota and outside Denver and you name it. She did dinner theater. Yeah. And then she was in, uh, what was it? Uh, the, the, the one about the princess in New York and um, breakout star. And then she does a rival with Denis Villeneuve. Give me a 
Wow. And she was fantastic in it. <laughs> um, she amazes me because she is a, but now she's a brand. She was, she was in that and she was in Talladega Nights yeah, with but Will she, Ferrell. Yeah, she's also very lucky that people give her chances like that too. Yeah, be well, to. because, because she, if I were to say one of the key words for her, one of her key three words as an actress, mm -hmm. surprising. I was surprised she could sing so well in that first film, yeah. whatever it was. I was surprised that she could be so touching and emotional and depressing in Arrival with Denis Villeneuve. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that she was a, a, a relatively small part in Talladega Nights, but still interesting playing Susan, the personal assistant of Will Ferrell, the mildly idiotic uh, you know, NASCAR driver. Yeah. She always surprises me. Mm -hmm. Is there? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no. And, and that's frankly, as a casting director, why I would look at her because she'd be, I would love to see how she would read this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there um, a formula that you have and go by to come up with those three terms or three keywords? Well, actually, let me let me offer you this um, for your listeners. If you go to nonfictionbrand.com slash gift, you can download absolutely free three worksheets. One of them is a five question worksheet that's just meant to get you thinking about what your key three could be. Mm -hmm. Things like one of my favorite questions on there is what totally legal thing in your field of business or human endeavor that is completely legal, will you not do? Now, and the example I give is in advertising, it's completely legal to advertise guns or cigarettes. I won't work on gun or cigarette accounts. Why? Yeah. Because what you don't do, won't do, is as important to understand and define as what you do do. Mm, so as an actor, mm -hmm. do you do full frontal nudity? No. That's a hard stop. Great. That's indicative of who you are as a person, a human being, as an actor. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that worksheet. And then there are two others that are designed to help you start building and projecting and protecting and communicating your personal brand right away today. And there are two techniques, one using selfies, a thing I call the <laughs> unselfish selfie. Ooh. Yeah, because it's not about you. Yeah. As every good actor knows, I'm not there to look great. I'm there to look, to make the, the content, the story, the, the play, and my fellow actors look good. And what happens? I look great because I'm actually working to make them look good. That applies to every single field of human endeavor. And um, then the other one uh, is another technique that can get you started right away using comment sections to build conversations with the people who are flying in the flock that you desperately want to fly in. That's, that's, thank you so much for offering that. Yeah. I, again, that's at nonfictionbrand.com slash gift. I will ask, do you want to join my email list? You don't even have to fill out the <laughs> form. Just download the stuff and start doing it. Excellent. I, I'm looking forward to sharing that with everyone and I'll put all those links in the show notes so they can be clicked on very, very easily. 
Um, it's been amazing having you on here and I, I feel like we need to wrap up, but I also feel like we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours more um, because I feel like we have so much in common. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is a question that I ask my guests to wrap up. Um, and that question is, if your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? My inner voice, what would it say? It'd say something like, hey, you, stop hiding and start sharing your voice. As an actor, you know exactly what I mean when I say yeah. sharing your voice. Mm -hmm. Don't yes. hold it in. Let it bounce off the back of the room so you can hear it. Share your voice. How many times have you heard that from a director? Project. Project. Share your voice. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time... Stay tuned in to you.